Hello and welcome to episode number 119 of the Agro Innovations Podcast, all things related and debated in agriculture. I'm your host, Frank Aragona. This episode of the podcast has been released onto our website, agroinnovations.com slash podcast, on Monday, February 14th, 2011. On this episode of the Agro Innovations Podcast, we are joined by Teresa Crimmins, the Partnership and Outreach Coordinator for the U.S. National Phenology Network. Teresa Crimmins, welcome to the Agro Innovations Podcast. Thank you, Frank. What is phenology? Uh, phenology is the study of the seasonal life cycle events in plants and animals. So it's things like um, when do plants um, leaves turn green in the spring, or when do they put on flowers, or when do birds migrate, or when do um, insects go through um, different stages of their life cycles, that sort of stuff. Okay, so this word is probably a new word to most people, although the concepts embodied in the word are not new. Um, talk a little bit about the history of phenology as an art and as a science. Sure. So actually, people have been paying attention to phenology and using it to make really important decisions for pretty much as long as humans have been around on the planet, and, and especially in times where we were less concerned with the calendar or the clock. Um, it was... The, the timing of um, different ev events really helped us know when we should plant our crops and uh, make decisions about really what's important um, from uh, from month to month. Okay, so why is monitoring phenology important in this day and age? Well, we're actually starting to pay much closer attention to it now because it's been shown to be a really good indicator of how communities of plants and animals are responding to changes in climate and, and variations from year to year, too. It's been established uh, that, um, for example, a lot of plants in temperate environments are cued to put on their leaves or their flowers once temperatures increase to a certain level in the spring. Um, and, if, in, and until the temperatures become warm enough, the plants just remain dormant and don't start doing their, their thing. And in a lot of cases, uh, in a lot of places in recent decades, we've observed that spring is coming earlier and earlier. Temperatures are warming sooner and sooner. And so the plants are beginning to green up and put on their flowers earlier in the season. And this is actually having some far-reaching implications for things like when pollinators are depending upon plants to have their flowers um, open at certain times of the year and the pollinators aren't necessarily present, we're starting to see some of these couplings coming apart and things that used to be synchronous events are no longer synchronous and these are having cascading effects throughout ecosystems. And so um, because of these, because we know that plants and animals are really cued into climate conditions and, and weather conditions in, in from day to day and year to year, um, we can begin to track how climate conditions are changing and in response how the phenologies or the when plants and animals are, are doing their different things is changing from year to year as well. Well, what kind of, you mentioned cascading effects, what kind of cascading effects are we starting to see and what kind of cascading effects can we expect to see as a result of climate disruption? Sure. So there hasn't been a whole lot of documentation of this, but there are a few classic examples that are being pointed to pretty regularly, um, one, of, one of which is that in some species we're be beginning to really see population declines, um, which could perhaps eventually lead to extinctions of certain species. One great example of that is the pied flycatcher, which is a bird that overwinters 
um, in the southern hemisphere and then does its breeding during the spring and summer um, in the northern hemisphere over in the UK. And the birds themselves are cued to migrate north in the spring by the sun angle. So uh, when, when, um, when, when the days start getting longer, then the birds know to migrate north. And in the past, they have arrived um, in the north just when the oaks were putting on their leaves and certain caterpillars, which feed on those leaves, were really starting to become abundant, and that was a primary food source for these birds. Um, now that the temperatures are warming up sooner in the spring and the, the plants are responding to that, um, the oaks are putting on their leaves sooner, the caterpillars are also responding by becoming more abundant sooner in the season, and now when the pied flycatchers are migrating north, being cued by sun angle, which isn't changing, um, there are no longer a whole lot of caterpillars for them to eat. And so in a few locations in, the, in their range in the north, they've been seeing up to 90% declines in population of these species. Other implications could include opening up niches for exotic species to take hold where there weren't necessarily those opportunities before. Of course, you know, all the other <laughs> negative things that we think of, spread of disease and um, pests and infectious infections and that sort of thing. We don't really know, but we are starting to see evidence of species changing their ranges, you know, perhaps further north or, or um, for, uh, upslope to follow different temperatures. And, and really the classic example is seeing these decoupling of the timings the ti- where um, in, the, in the past things have been timed to occur at the, at the same time and those are no, no longer matching up anymore. Well, let's talk about phenology as a science. What was the state of phenology data before the formation of the phenology network? That is a great question, and I think that we're still uncovering the answer to that. What we're what we're really finding out is that in within this country, anyways, and I can only speak to that. In other countries, there have been long-standing phenology networks where there have been a um, centralized location for folks to submit data, and it's been archived in some cases for for centuries. Um, here in the United States, um, we haven't had a centralized effort or um, or a repository for data to be collected and archived. But what we are learning is that there have been a whole lot of um, regional or very local efforts that in some cases have been going on for, for decades. Um, just very dedicated individuals have been collecting very good observations, um, and some of them are now coming to us and saying, hey, I've got this data, or I'm interested in continuing this effort, what can I do? But but beyond those regional and local efforts, there there wasn't one real concentrated effort. What what we do have, though, the history that we are building on is that starting in the 1950s, there was um, this historic lilac observation network, which was started by um, Joseph Caprio in the West and another individual in the eastern U.S., and they um, had folks observing phenology of cloned lilacs across the U.S., and that's been a, a remarkable resource for us to be able to document how Leaf, leaf out and flowering timing has changed since that time, since the 1950s into the present, as climate conditions have changed as well. And it really was the success of that that network of, of lilacs and observers, and then the the, find, the very important findings that came out of those observations that basically began to lay the groundwork for um, the program that we have now, which is um, allowing folks to observe many, many, uh, really, phenology of any plant, pretty much, and um, any animal species as well. Why was the National Phenology Network formed, and was it what is its mission? <laughs> the mission really is to serve as 
um, the primary hub for phenological activities in the United States um, and really and beyond our boundaries as well, um, to engage citizen scientists observers as well as scientists and research observers in the collection and archive of phenology observations um, to make these data and information available to decision makers, so including scientists and researchers, land managers, um, others that may need this information, and, and in the process of all that to hopefully uh, engage folks just outside um, becoming more aware of their environment and how it is beginning to change as well. Tell us about some of the field monitoring tools that the National Phenology Network has developed. So the primary one um, is our uh, phenology monitoring program, which is called Nature's Notebook, um, and you can access this from our website, which is www.usanpn.org, um, and that is the program by which anyone can make, make and submit observations of plant or animal phenology. And what you can do is go on that website, and there are um, a whole plethora of uh, educational materials that will explain the program and how to make the observations. You can access data sheets to take out in the field. Um, then you can create a, an account online um, and enter your data. And then we're right in the process of developing the first set of visualization tools then um, by which you can go online and if you're an observer, um, look at your data on a map in map form and graph form and see how your, your observations are comparing with others. Or if you're um, interested just in the data that exists in the database to be able to explore those data as well and see which species are being observed in which parts of the country and, and um, when, when different phenophases are being observed and that sort of thing. And that, that's really the, the primary way through which folks can get involved. Um, there are other ways too. You can, if you have an existing data set um, of phenology observations of, of some form or another, we have a data set registry tool where you can um, let others know about that and perhaps connect, other, connect, connect up with others who may be interested in helping you analyze your data. You can uh, join um, a listserv. We have um, mechanisms for engaging folks and, and um, sharing information. Um, and uh, we're continuing to build a whole lot of other mechanisms for engagement and sharing information as well. What species and categories of species are you most interested in and why? At this point, what you'll see when you go on our website is a, is a list of about 250-some plant species and then I think about 60 animals. Um, however, we've recently changed our system such that you're, you actually can make observations on any plant or animal species. We've developed our, our observation protocols to be as consistent as possible within subgroups. So, for example, as much as possible, we try to, we, we try to have you observe the same things, the same events in all deciduous trees as, as it makes sense to. And so we basically ask that if you're, you're going to observe a, a species that isn't on our list, let us know and then we can help ensure that um, the, the observation protocol is appropriate for what you're looking for. But the plants that are on the list so far were selected primarily because um, they were deemed to be important either because they are um, an exotic species, um, because they are an, an allergen. Um, because they're important agriculturally, because they're important, um, they're considered to be uh, keystone species in a, in a particular region. Um, and so those were the, the, the characteristics that, that we were looking for when we initially were selecting plants, but then we chose to just open it up for observations on anything because we really received so many requests for 
things that weren't, weren't on our list. Anyways, and then animals, I, I believe we have six taxa groups. We have birds, mammals, reptiles, fish, insects, and I believe one more that's escaping me. <laughs> that's okay. And those have been selected also primarily for ease of identification, um, likelihood that they'll be uh, encountered, and to reduce danger, <laughs> observer danger. So, for example, we don't have things like rattlesnakes or, or bears on our list um, because we don't really want to encourage folks to put their, their, their um, safety in danger by making observations on those sorts of things. So no following bears. <laughs> um, yeah, we, do, we just don't really want to come across as encouraging that sort of thing. <laughs> what about bees? Uh, bees actually are on the list because they are such an important, they're such an important species agriculturally and also because there's been so much attention with them recently with uh, colony collapse disorder and that sort of thing. So I know for sure Bombus is on our list. I think we have at least three bee species on, the, on our list so far. Um, and, and of course, we take observations on others as well. Well, this is just wonderful to hear you talking about this, and the thing that occurs to me and that I've talked about frequently with many different guests on the podcast, but this seems like the perfect thing to get the schools involved and the biology departments. I mean, when I think about something like observing the phenological cycles of insects, I mean, what better way to introduce people to phenology and uh, get young people involved and and make it a little bit fun and, and interesting and more exciting than just the textbook stuff. Uh, have you done much outreach with the schools, and what has the response been? You are right on the mark. You're, you're right. That's it's it's a it's a wonderful goldmine waiting to be accessed. Um, our program is we've we've decided that our program really is targeted toward about the sixth grade level and above, just because we ask for some pretty detailed information and we find that it's kind of demanding for for kids under that age although there is a parallel program a sister program really of ours called the um, project budburst which is at projectbudburst.org that definitely isn't appropriate for younger ages um, and those data that are collected via that program ultimately are intended to end up in the national phenology networks database as well um, we have we have had some explorations into trying to engage um, school children, but just haven't had the, t the staff so far because our program is just really finally reaching its, its maturity this spring. Um, our, our program, our, the USA NPN has been in, in existence for about, I think we're going on five years now, and so we've really been spending the bulk of the time um, to date building the program, creating the, the protocol, selecting the species, building the, the database and the web interface to interact with that. And we're finally now to that point where we have that, and we're now just really beginning to, be, to uh, reach out and engage a whole lot of people. Um, until, until now, really, we were trying to be kind of selective in who we really reached out to just because we didn't want to have a whole lot of folks come and experience a unfinished product, get frustrated with it, and then not come back. <laughs> now that it's really fully functioning, um, that's really something what we, that we want to do. And we will be, I, I think we are advertising an education uh, um, coordinator position very soon as well to try and do just what you're explaining, what, what, what you suggested is um, engage lots and lots of school kids. Well, I would imagine that in a class size, which is about average of 30 students, that at least uh, 10 of those, between 10 and 15 of those, would really get something out of this and find it interesting and enjoyable. And another, you know, maybe two to five would really uh, 
feel a, a spark of light kind of ignite within them as they are introduced to some of this stuff. Um, I, I hope so. That would be great. That'd be a fantastic way to increase our numbers. <laughs> well, I, I want to ask you um, about the online database tools that you're using. We have talked about the field monitoring tools that you have developed, but uh, tell us about some of the online database tools that you have. Um, well, right now, the primary tool that we have is the Nature's Notebook interface, which is the, the interface through which you register yourself and the site where you're making your observations and then enter your phenology observations. Um, the data visualizations are what are under development, and the, the first few of those will be available in the next couple of weeks, um, is my understanding. Um, we're also coming up with the functionality to be able to query the database and um, download records that are specific to what you're looking for, so either date ranges or um, specific species or taxa groups or um, location um, data. Uh, at this point, what we've got online is just a flat file of, of all the data that are in our database. So the data are accessible at the moment. You, just, you would have to do that filtering or sorting yourself to pick out what you wanted. But, but the development of um, being able to, to visualize and, and query and download the data are some of the next big things that are coming online. And then further down the road in the IT realm, um, we're looking at developing iPhone and Android apps for data collection and probably visualization as well, I would, I would assume, um, since everything's based on Google Map anyway. <laughs> um, and uh, we're trying to increase some of the social networking. Um, we have a presence on Facebook and then also um, frequently post Twitter Twitters, um, but want to increase that. We're also developing some functionality for our website um, to try and uh, engender more more fun in the in the data submission process. So there, we're developing a leaderboard whereby um, you can keep track of who's submitting the most observations, and uh, we want to. We've also kicked around ideas like being able to earn badges or something similar for your or your registered username based on submitting so many observations for a particular taxa group or within a single season or a single day or something like that um, to try and make it a more fun. Um, we haven't, we're just beginning to scope that kind of stuff. Well, I would, are, I would tell you to uh, definitely that Twitter is, is a potentially useful tool for this. I have been a little bit active on the hashtag phenology um, chat on Twitter, and that's a little bit uh, of fun. There's not that much activity there, but maybe an organization like yours could really uh, provide a spark plug for that. What services does the National Phenology Network provide besides some of the listservs and um, some of the field monitoring tools that you've already mentioned, but, but what services are provided to facilitate this process? Yes, um, if organizations are interested in Receiving training, we can we can arrange to have webinars where folks log in and um, we walk them through the different steps of setting up a, a system um, and getting going, or or we can tailor it toward you know teaching folks how to um, step through um, entering data online. Uh, we're also talking about setting up um, set Skype call-in hours. So probably probably a couple of hours each week, and we're going to try staggering them in different time slots so that we're hitting all the time zones, trying to make it as convenient as possible for folks to be able to call in and um, chat with staff our staff about questions they might have, or get 
uh, assistance um, in case they become stuck. Uh, we were also kicking around the idea of just scheduling a couple of training webinars and advertising them widely for anybody to be able to call in and, and um, see the to, to learn about the um, to the program. And another, th that's really an alternative to what we already have online, which are our, um, our training videos, which are narrated slideshows. So it's kind of like one of us walking you through the steps, and you can access them online at any time and go through them at your own pace. And I think it, I think it ends up adding up to about an hour's worth of time if you um, sit through those training videos. And so we, we're just trying to offer the, um, the training in as many different types of um, media as possible because we recognize that some folks would rather work through a handbook or look at data sheets and others would like to sit down and watch a video or others may like to try to talk to someone in person. And since we are a small staff and there seems to be quite a bit of demand for in-person trainings and that sort of thing and it's not possible for us to travel around the country and do as many of these as we really want to, doing it virtually seemed to be the next best thing. So we're really um, trying to make that as, as, as functional as possible. And so we have that technology to be able to set up a, a webinar and give folks a call in, and it's free to them, and they can call in, and um, you know we can set up a webcam, and and basically it's you know as close as we can get to the face-to-face. -face. Okay. Uh, well, you mentioned organizations that are actually involved in this, and potentially that are partnered with the National Phenology Network. What organizations do you consider would be a good match to partner with the National Phenology Network? Do you have a, a profile, or can you talk about maybe some of the characteristics of organizations that, that might be good matches? Sure. Well, we have, uh, really, it's wide-ranging. Um, we've got relationships with some research entities, with federal and state and local level agencies, um, with some education-type organizations, zoos or um, nature, nature, garden or, um, nature centers or botanic gardens, that sort of thing, as well as quite a few um, similar sorts of citizen science programs. And there, it, it really turns out that every partnership that we have <laughs> is its own type. It's hard for us to put, a, put them into bins, and I've struggled with this before because I wanted to be able to, you know, offer a suite of options for different groups and be able to say, you know, here's the kind of relationship that would be best for you. Um, but really how it's been working is that uh, an organization may be interested in working with us. They contact us. We talk about it, and we just figure out <laughs> what's the best bet. But, but to, to, be, to try and generalize, we have, you know, some research relationships, education-type relationships, engagement type relationships and so something like an engagement would be we have partnerships with groups such as the Great Sunflower Project which is a, another um, citizen science program based out of San Francisco State University where observers are asked to plant sunflowers in their garden and then watch for bees to visit those sunflowers and it's been it's turned out to to be an, an enormous data resource for folks studying bees and where they visit and where they're going and where, where they are when they are throughout the season. We partnered with them and invited the observers to also report on when their sunflowers were putting on their leaves, when they were putting on their flowers, when they finally um, died for the year, which are phenology. Those, those pieces of information are phenology. And that has actually generated quite a bit of, bit, quite a bit of phenology data for us as well. And so that's been a super great, a really great partnership. And the characteristics that have made it successful are that the individuals engaged in the Great Sunflower Project were really already clued into making observations. Um, and so it was, it was really an easy fit and a good population, a good audience to reach out to because they already understood 
the importance of making observations, we just asked them to do something else, you know, a little bit of extra work, and a lot of them seemed happy to do that. Let's see. Um, some of our we're, another different kind of partnership has been with the U.S. National Park Service. There's an arm of the National Park Service called the Inventory and Monitoring Program, the INM program, and that is a branch where they are already they have trained scientists and staff out in the national parks um, setting up long-term monitoring of a lot of different types of natural resources. And so we're working through the, with those scientists and, and park staff to engage them to be, begin to make plant and animal phenology observations. And it's a win-win situation because the natural resource managers there need that kind of information to make decisions on park management. And it helps us increase our data resource that again, we can make available to them or to anyone. The characteristics that have made that a beneficial partnership, again, is, has really been that it's a population that is really hungry for the same kind of information. They, they want better information to make better decisions, and so we're, we're helping them get further along the road in doing that. And one of the things that we can really offer to them is the, we already have the observation protocols in place, and so rather than them having to invent that from scratch, they can take and they can adopt ours, um, and then it, first of all know that they're they're accessing protocols that have been scientifically vetted um, and reviewed, and then also know that data that they're collecting is contributing to a greater data resource um, that can be made available to them. Okay, now I'm gonna uh, ask you to go out on a limb here and. I know that we collect data because we don't always know, we usually don't know what the results of collecting that data are going to be, uh, but I'd still like to ask you, what do you expect that we will begin to discover as we collect comprehensive records of changes in phenology from one year to the next? Well, what's been documented so far from from some of the existing records, both in this country and in other countries, is really, in a lot of cases, um, trends. And in a lot of cases, the trends have been toward things happening earlier in the spring and later in the fall. So essentially a lengthening of the growing season, which has then been, folks, scientists have really tried to associate that with um, changing climate conditions or other environmental conditions. Um, and so although it's not really you can't really say across the board that, that things are advancing everywhere um, or that the growing season is lengthening everywhere. It's what, what we're beginning to see in the literature now is that it really depends on where you're at and it depends on which species you're looking at and how that's being manifest in the, in the um, ecosystem, of course, depends on the place too. But I, I think that what we're going to see as we collect these more and more data, as we're going to see an increasing increase in the interest in looking at these kinds of events, and an increase in the awareness that these events that we pay attention to from year to year, not only do they vary from year to year, but that there 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 does tend to be an underlying trend um, toward timing change in timing um, over the the long term, you know, decades or, or even centuries. And I think that we're going to see. Um, an increased appreciation for using these kinds of information um, in improving decision-making, too. Well, on that note, I would like to thank your organization for an initiative that is long overdue and much needed. And I'd like to thank you guys for reaching out to such a broad spectrum of uh, people who are involved in this in one way or another, naturalists and scientists and land managers and people in government and elsewhere. Uh, 
Um, and I wish this organization great success now and into the future. Wonderful. Thank you so much. We appreciate that you appreciate what we're trying to do. That concludes my interview with Teresa Crimmins of the National Phenology Network. I will link to their website, and I will also link to some articles if some of you who are listening to this website are thinking and wondering how you might put this together with some of the things you are doing in permaculture and organic agriculture and holistic management, and you're wondering how phenology is relevant, uh, well, I think in the first place it's relevant as a monitoring tool, and the National Phenology Network obviously provides some very excellent tools for doing so. So you will not have to reinvent the wheel if you are interested in, in monitoring phenology. I also believe that phenology will be very important as we inhabit ecosystems and landscapes for us to be able to do things like uh, plan grazing more effectively, uh, plan different kinds of harvesting activities more effectively, develop wildlife management plans. Many of the things that are incumbent upon us as land managers uh, are facilitated by having good phenology data. So it's very, very important that we participate in the collection of phenology data and also the application of this data in our practice, uh, whatever that practice may be. Now, naturally, I don't have all the different applications that we can use this phenology data for. I have recently written a couple of articles on um, phenological grazing planning. So if you are someone who is managing livestock, especially in a range-type environment, but even on planted pasture, phenological data can be very useful to you. Uh, I will link to the articles that I have written on phenological grazing planning so you can get an idea of how that actually might work in practice. And I would encourage you to check that out. That will be in the show notes for this episode, along with the links to the website for the National Phenology Network. Well, now I'd like to do something that is one of my favorite things to do on this podcast, and that is to read messages um, and emails that I've gotten from listeners. I always appreciate it when people send me uh, emails, and I do read them all, although I don't respond to them all. And if you have sent me an email recently and I have not responded, I do apologize for that. Uh, I have been on the road, and um, sometimes I can't really think of anything to say except thank you although I should uh, be more active about responding to people's emails and, and saying thank you to them when they do send me emails. But if you're listening right now and you've sent me an email in, in the recent past and I haven't responded, let me tell you right now, thank you very much for sending me the email. I, I did read it and I did enjoy it. Now let me read some excerpts from some people who have uh, sent me some comments Part of the difficulty in collecting these comments and reading them here on the podcast is that I get them from so many different sources. Some people leave them as comments on the show notes for each episode uh, at agroinnovations.com slash podcast. Some of them send me messages on Facebook, and others send me emails directly to my email address. So I have messages from all kinds of different listeners from different avenues, and that's fine, uh, but it does get a little bit confusing sometimes. So let me read an excerpt from an email that was sent to me by Tom. Tom also sent along some pictures, so thank you very much for that, Tom. And uh, not too long ago, I asked people how they listened to the Agro Innovations podcast, and uh, I got some good responses to that. So let me share some of what Tom had to say. As to my listening habits, I listen alone, most typically while doing chores about the house like washing dishes. And then Tom goes on to talk about... Uh, 
Well, I'll read what his, what his comment says. It seems that now the investment finance banking monster has ravaged technology and housing. It is planning and doing more and beyond with food commodities. First, we had the housing investment bubbles and consequent destruction and homelessness. Now we have food commodities investment bubbles and consequent destruction and starvation. To my mind, if there's anything that simultaneously links, impinges upon, and impacts the subjects of agriculture, environment, economics, and consciousness, it is the investment, finance, banking complex, especially the banking part. In terms of human rights, politics, and the fate of the earth, the stakes are absolutely huge. And then Tom goes on to recommend a specific guest who can speak to this issue uh, intelligently and knowledgeably, and uh, someone who the listeners of this podcast may be familiar with. I don't want to mention this person's name yet because I have uh, contacted this person for an interview, and um, it looks like we will have something for you on this topic of banking uh, food commodities and food prices, which which I've been following very closely lately, and if you uh, follow me on Facebook, you know this. And I think it would be definitely be a very appropriate topic for the Agro Innovations podcast. So look for that in the near future. Hopefully, if I am able to get an interview with the guest that I have invited. Now Luke wrote to me and said, "I just listened to the second half of the Scott Russell Sanders interview. A great interview." It is exemplary of how most people who concern themselves with issues of regenerative ag, permaculture, peak oil, and post-petroleum feel. For myself, at least, I oscillate between the feelings of hope and prosperity that relocalized economies and broad use of permacultural principles could bring us, and the Doomer outlook, which really does weigh on one's conscience. That said, having podcasts in my ear week after week, bringing an open and honest discussions of these paramount topics has a revitalizing effect. I'm young, don't have as much history in these circles as must, as many of your guests do, but it is an excellent way to advance one's knowledge in the absence of receptive circles of peers. The Sea Realm, Deconstructing Dinner, Diet Soap, the Agro Innovations Podcast, and others are an incredible way for many people to engage. Thanks as always. Well, thank you, Luke. And Luke sent me a bunch of great uh podcast interview candidates, and I have followed up on those, Luke, so hopefully some of those folks will be appearing on the Agro-Innovations podcast uh, shortly. And finally, I got a message from Lisa, and Lisa says, thanks for the podcast. I listen to it alone in my home office while pounding through boring paperwork, and I try to share it with people in my social network if I feel it's something they would appreciate. I truly appreciate the work you put into it. Being a parent volunteer at school, I understand just how much energy entails to live a dream. You bring topics to my radar that I would never dream of connecting to my garden interests. Thanks so much. Your work has not gone unnoticed. Cheers from Northern Canada. Well, thank you, Lisa, and uh, thank you very much for uh, mentioning that uh, this podcast brings topics to your radar that you would not have previously thought to connect to your garden interests. That is one of the things that I like to do the most, and I'm glad that uh, at least for some of the listeners I'm succeeding. A reminder that this and all episodes of the Agro Innovations Podcast are released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license. To learn more about that, you can visit creativecommons.org, or you can find a link to that on the Agro Innovations Podcast page. 
I'm on Facebook. Uh, visit agroinnovations.com, and you will find links to uh, my Facebook page. Also on Twitter, twitter.com slash agroinnovations. So follow me there if you are interested in getting updates. This is the Agro Innovations Podcast. I'm your host, Frank Aragona. Until next time, saludos. Saludos.